Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion, during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, Though for 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness, and to whom did God swear? that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Thank you, Jess, for reading, and thank you for that um, prayer as well, that wonderful prayer as we look at God's word together. Um, if you've got your Bibles open, keep them open on that passage, please. Um, and if you haven't got a Bible, there are some on the table there, so you're more than welcome to walk down and, and grab one if you want. Don't feel too self-conscious doing that. Um, 
But as we start, so we're looking at this passage, and it is quite a long one, and there is a lot in it. And so I won't be able to cover everything in detail as I'd like, but um, I hope as we look at this, we'll see again the beauty of Jesus and the importance of the eternal rest that God gives us and what that means for us. Now, as a school kid, I used to love playing this game called Top Trumps. I don't know if anyone um, has had these as a Christmas present or whatever. Um, and as a dad, when my sons were younger, Sam and Noah, they also like playing these. We, for those who don't know what Top Trumps are, they're like a deck of cards. They have different themes like racing cars or you can see sharks that's one of my favorites or there's a whole bunch of star wars ones and stuff like this and basically there are different categories you play the game there are different categories and you're trying to choose the one that will um trump the rest it's the power category that will win the card off them and so um in the star wars ones there's stuff like speed intelligence force sensitivity um yoda always used to win that one um but the aim of the game is very simple choose the best card and get and win the other cards off the other players. Now, if the pastor of Hebrews, the writer here, was playing top trumps, he's only going to say, there's only one card. There's only one card. You could have a deck of a thousand cards. There's only one card that wins. It's the Jesus card. <laughs> because as his argument has been in this opening chapters, Chapter 1, Jesus is utterly supreme. We see God with a human face. In chapter 2, as we were looking at last week, we see God with a human face. Chapter 1, God with a human face. Chapter 2, God with a human face. Coming and being the bridge we need. The pioneer of our salvation, we're told. The one who goes first. The great sympathizer who knows what we're going through and is with us on that journey. The great high priest, the faithful one who gives his life for giving our sin so that we might have life. And that's why when we land in chapter 3 verse 1, we, we hear that melody again. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and our high priest. Did you hear the melody? Fix your eyes, fix your thoughts in verse 1 here. We're going to keep hearing that throughout the letter. Jesus really is enough. He is the bridge between us and God. Because as we're told in verse 1 of chapter 3, he's the ultimate first apostle. That is, he is the one who is sent by God. Interestingly, you'll only find that word apostle used of Jesus in the New Testament here in Hebrews. The sent one is the one sent from God, sent by the Father to do God's saving work. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in John's gospel, and particularly his prayer before he was arrested in John 17. He is the sent one of God, but he's also the high priest, and we'll keep coming back to that theme through this letter, who brings us to God. And can you see the two directions that are at work in Jesus? Being sent from God to us as the apostle, and then as the priest bringing us to God, sent and going to. He is the perfect bridge. That He can only do that because he is both fully God and fully man. That is both the bold and audacious truth that Christianity is built on. That is what fundamentally each one of us has to wrestle with. Do we believe that? And the pastor makes this audacious move 
to comparing Jesus to Moses, which is the first point I just want us to look at as we look at those first um, six verses. We've got to fix our mind on Jesus because he's greater than Moses. Now, for the audience that he's writing to, that would be a, you can't be serious moment. Like their jaws would hit the floor hearing this. Because for a first century Jewish Christian, it's hard to find a higher ranking person than Moses. Just think about it. He's the foundational prophet of the Old Testament in world religions. He's acknowledged as this hero. Islam, Judaism, Christianity. Yeah, Moses, no question. He was the shepherd prophet. He was born a Hebrew in slavery, raised in Pharaoh's palace. Um, The American theologian I.M. Holderman beautifully sums up Moses' life when he says, he was the child of a slave and the son of a queen. He was born in a hut and lived in a palace. He inherited poverty and enjoyed unlimited wealth. He was the leader of armies and the keeper of flocks. He was the mightiest of warriors and the meekest of men. He was educated in the Pharaoh's court and dwelt in the desert. He had the wisdom of Egypt and the faith of a child. He was fitted for the city and wandered in the wilderness. He was tempted by the pleasures of sin and endured hardships of virtue. He was backward in speech and talked with God. He had the rod of a shepherd and the power of the infinite. He was a fugitive from Pharaoh and an ambassador from heaven. He was the giver of law and the forerunner of grace. He died alone on Mount Moa and appeared with Christ in Judea at the transfiguration. No man assisted at his funeral, yet God buried him. Can you see? He's, he's the high point, high ranking, top trump, Old Testament guy. And perhaps the most important passage in the Old Testament that tells us how highly God saw Moses is here in, in Numbers 12, and it's quoted in our passage in verse 5. There's that little clip from it in verse 5. Let me just read you um, what God said. He's, in Numbers 12, he's actually rebuking Aaron. That's Moses' brother who is the priest of the Levites and the one um, in charge of worship. And Miriam is there as well, um, Aaron's wife. And God's correcting them and rebuking them um, because it seemed that they were a bit jealous of Moses and his ministry. And we're saying, well, doesn't God speak through all of us? And then God said to um, Aaron and Moses, these, um, Aaron and Miriam, sorry, these are the words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true from, of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. There's a quote that's used in verse 5. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses. And yet, even with such credentials, the writer of Hebrews boldly states, chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. So is he disrespecting Moses? Is he doing an Aaron and Miriam speaking against him? Well, no, not at all. The pastor praises Moses' faithfulness, doesn't he? You can see that as he's writing. The tone is one of honour and respect. He's faithful in all his work for God's people. But the reason Jesus is better than Moses is that Moses is still only part of the house of God's people. Jesus is the builder of it. 
And that word house there, it, it, it is the picture used of God's people, the family God is building. Verse 6, we're told, and we, that is all believers, are his house, if we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope we have of glory, in which we glory. Yes, Moses was the greatest prophet. Yes, he was obedient. But Jesus is the one who formed God's family. He's the builder. He's the one who created everything, as we're told in chapter 1. Jesus has called us into that family as holy brothers and sisters. And then the second reason is that Moses gave promises, but they were actually fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 5 tells us Moses' job was to bear witness, that is to testify, to point forward. There's more to come about what God would do. Yes, he led Israel out of slavery, but it wasn't Moses' power that protected them. It wasn't Moses' power that split the Red Sea. It wasn't Moses who provided for them in the desert or protected them. It was God's work. It was God through him. And even Moses only saw the promised land from a distance. He couldn't lead the people into it or enjoy it as a consequence of his disobedience against God at a certain point as he ignored God's word and ignored God's instruction. You see, Moses was a mouthpiece, but Jesus is the God who gave the words. Moses did see the form of the Lord, but Jesus is that form in human flesh. Moses said God would save his people and Jesus is the ultimate saviour. This is how we understand the Old Testament. We don't neglect it. We rejoice in the truth there because it shows us the fullness of God's saving plan and how big and majestic his salvation is. Tim Chester, um, a Bible writer, writes some, some phenomenal books and he's done some studies in Hebrews. He's, he gives this very helpful illustration. He says, imagine you go to your GP and she's a lovely doctor, and she always puts you at ease. She asks some questions. She's checking things over, breathing, and needs to do a blood test. And when the results come back, she says, it's bad news. You need an op, but I'm referring you to a surgeon. And so you go along with it. The day of the operation arrives. And instead of going to the surgeon, you go back to the GP because she's so lovely. She knows the stuff. She's done such a good job. I'd rather be treated by you. Well, what's her response going to be? No, go to the surgeon. The whole point is that the GP does a great job, but the job is to get you to the person who can really fix you. And the Christians reading this letter would be doing that if they turned their backs on Jesus' good news. If they went back to their religious way of life in Judaism. You see, Moses did a brilliant job, but he was pointing to someone greater. His job was to take his people to the saviour they needed. And that comes fully fleshed out in Jesus. So today, I appreciate as we sit here in this school hall in Manchester 2021... I reckon most of you are not going, you know what, I want to turn back to Leviticus. Yeah, let's spend some time sorting out polyester and cotton and, you know, making my shellfish and everything else is all separated out. I doubt you're tempted to go back to Old Testament law. <laughs> yeah? But I wonder whether you struggle, like me, 
with the siren call of the old way of life. What the Apostle Peter calls an empty way of life. 1 Peter, the empty way of life handed down from your ancestors. That's the old way of life. The way perhaps where we look for quick fixes, for pleasure, for the possessions that will just fill us up a bit more. And Christmas time is full of that, isn't it? I don't know, just, I love watching the Christmas adverts and I love the Christmassy feel they give. But man alive, stuff, 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 get more stuff. And it starts to make me feel, oh, I need that stuff. Yeah? I need it to fill me up. Retail therapy, shopping sprees, overeating, overdrinking. We, Emily and I and, and Noah were in London yesterday. We were meeting a pastor from Sarang Church. He sends his love to everyone. And, and we had a bit of time after walking around and we did the, you know, down the shops that we could never afford to go into. And it's all looking awesome. And there's Ferraris going past and stuff like this. And everyone's sort of Instagramming and things, you know, Burlington Arcade, Bond Street, all of that. And it starts to rub off on you. Yeah, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have this stuff? You know, driving in that Ferrari, a few people taking photos, looking at you, they've made it. And go, no, Lord Jesus, that, wow, it's an empty way of life. It's not casting judgment on those people, but we're longing to fill, fill up. And you know, this season also shows the emptiness that comes with loneliness, doesn't it? And sorrow and regrets. There's pain. And that can leave us feeling empty. In that moment, don't turn away from Christ. Don't run from him. Don't think this letter, this point about Moses has no relevance. It has every relevance. Jesus is enough. You've got to fix your mind on him. Why? Because he will fill you up. He will give eternal rest. And that's where this passage transitions. So just our second point, fix your mind on Jesus, the eternal rest giver. Um, the ONS have some statistics that are just mind-blowing to me. In 2019 to 2020, which if you think about it with the pandemic and everything else that was going on, 17.9 million workdays were lost due to work-related ill health, such as stress, depression, or anxiety. That's an average of just over three weeks per person for stress, depression, or anxiety. Uh, when it comes to sleep, 36% of UK adults struggle to sleep at least on a weekly basis. I imagine there are some of you here who struggle with that, struggle with a good night's rest, a good night's sleep. It's a battle. Almost one in five have trouble sleeping every night. 55% of young people, 18 to 24, say they find it hard to get to sleep at least once a month. That could be a number of things, whether that's anxiety from work or just the cycles and rhythms of life that they have. I can remember in January earlier this year at Ministry of Business, we put on a sleep seminar um, with a, a sleep expert. And it was one of the fastest booked events I've ever hosted in terms of like one day I just put the thing out there and I had 10 people and I was like, right, we'll aim for 30. Within two days, just under 100 people had signed up for it and it got to just 198 or something in terms of online. Um, and I was just like, this is crazy. This is right in the moment. You know when you find something that feels like it's right on the pulse of things. 
Kirsten Burkett, who used to work at Oak Hill Theological College, where I was trained, she's written a book called The Resilience of um, a Spiritual Project. Resilience, a Spiritual Project. And she says, the secular world is well aware of the problems of stress. Of recent decades, a great deal of attention and research has been devoted to understanding what those who cope well with stress actually do. See, in other words, we're all trying to find the answer. We're all looking for that rest and how to help others learn to do the same thing. The search for resilience is not just about survival, but bouncing back more strongly. So it's not that I want a good night's sleep, I need a really better night's sleep so that I can take on the world the next day and then have more of the same. And it's not just treating problems, but understanding how to make healthy people even better. Then she says, this is a really interesting comment, in this way, the resilient life, or we could say the restful life, has become a bit of a golden chalice. It's the thing we're searching for. It's our salvation. And it's clear that people are longing for rest and peace, isn't it? So when we approach this section in the letter, I kind of want to give a health warning because it's easy to read into that word rest, our own meanings, our own expectations, our own desires. Perhaps you want lasting solutions to your tiredness. You want to improve your mental health. You want those are good things, and God truly cares about them as well. You can go to him with that. There is help. But we need to be cautious about looking for quick and superficial answers. Sort of just trust Jesus and everything will be fine. As if the gospel is just another health supplement along with my protein and iron and my vitamin Ds and my cod liver oil, and I'll have a bit of Jesus as well. No. Let's figure out what rest is being offered here. And Psalm 95, I hope you saw it. I hope you couldn't miss it as it was being read. It's so central to this passage. Psalm 95, written by King David. And it's a song that reflects what was happening to that generation that escaped Egypt in the Exodus. Even though they escaped the slavery and tyranny of Pharaoh, it wasn't happily ever after for them. It wasn't the Disney moment where everything's cool and you know the sun sets and everyone's happy. No, within a few weeks, the people were grumbling and quarreling against God. They grumbled about the lack of food. Then they grumbled about the food that God did provide. Then they grumbled about the lack of water. Then they grumbled about the fact that the water was provided. Then when they got to Mount Sinai, the, the place where God was going to reveal himself, they grumbled that Moses was up there too long, and they decided to make some golden bulls and worship them instead. Then when the Lord brought them to the edge of the promised land a few months later, they started grumbling and complaining about going into the promised land because it was too scary. This was the rebellion. This was the hardness of heart coming out in little ways that just attritionally broke them down. And God, in his perfect wisdom and judgment, gave Israel what they wanted. You don't want to enter the promised land? Okay, the desert's yours for 40 years. And they passed away there. And then Joshua, we get a reference to him in chapter 4, verse 8. He's the next leader who takes that generation into the promised land. So that grumbling, unbelieving generation are the ones that would, in verse um, 11 of chapter 3, what does it say of them? They shall never enter my rest. I hope when you heard those words, it took your breath away. I hope you were shocked. They shall never enter my rest. That is frightening. Rest here, for those, obviously meant 
going into Canaan, the promised land, what we know of Israel and the Palestinian territories now, which were promised to Abraham 400 years earlier. That's one way rest is used. But then the promised land wasn't sufficient. It didn't do the job because David is writing a psalm saying, enter into rest. And he is living in the promised land, in the palace, in Jerusalem, and it's still not filling up. There's still more rest to come. The promised land, you see, was a shadow, again, a shadow of what God was bringing in, the reality of rest with him for eternity. And so that's why in chapter 4, verse 4, we get that reference to creation. We're told God rested from his work of creating on the seventh day. That is, it's a day that actually doesn't come to an end in the Genesis account. It's unending. That Sabbath rest is the pinnacle of creation. And it doesn't mean that God's inactive. It doesn't mean he's sleeping or that he's just toddled off and having some time on Instagram or something or, you know, alone time, me time. He's sustaining the world. We're told that. It's powerful. The Father, Son, and Spirit are at work but they're at rest. It's done. It's an unbreakable rest, which he calls people into throughout time and space, the joy of his presence. And so what Moses, Joshua, David, and all the faithful believing family of God were longing for could only be provided in that ultimate rest giver, Jesus Christ. That's what we're told in verses 9 to 10. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest, also rests from their works, just as God did from his. You see, as God finished his work of creation, so Jesus finished the work of salvation. It's complete. On the cross, Jesus cries out, it is finished. Not in despair. It wasn't, oh, game over, it's all done, and this has all gone wrong. It was a declaration, a declaration of victory. It was a victorious fact. The work is done. It is finished. Sin is forgiven. There are no more jobs. There's nothing left for you and I to do to be at peace with God. So what's so great about this Sabbath rest? Can you see it's the complete end to sin? It's complete end to death. It has no claim on us. It is the guarantee that the trials you're facing right now, the tests you're going through, the suffering, the burdens of a lifetime's journey, this side of heaven, do not have the final word. They do not rob you of your rest. They can't. It is finished. It means that whilst we experience Jesus' peace here and now, he does give it to us, and he does give us rest in this life, whether it's a piece of work that goes amazingly well, or a refreshing holiday, or an unbroken night's sleep that energizes us, they're all good gifts from God, but they're only reminders, they're appetizers of what is to come. There will be snatched away. There will be frustration this side of entering the kingdom. But what the gospel tells us, what Jesus gives us is, you can expect that, but it is not the final word. It is not going to be like this in my kingdom. And that's why the exhortation today in verse 11 of chapter 4 sounds like a strange paradox, doesn't it? 
Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following the ex- their example of disobedience. So wait, wait a sec, we've got to strive to enter rest? That sounds like exhausting hard work. What, what's going on? You know, let's be honest though, as we've just said, resting in Christ doesn't come easy. It's not like I float around in a permanent state of nothing touching me and everything's fine. Our Lord didn't go through that, this side of of glory. Whether we're striving to prove ourselves at work or gain security or status in making money or that constant cycle of upgrading, a better job, a better house, a nicer neighborhood, a better start for the children, a better leisure time and holidays, better looking spouse, the pressure to keep upgrading, to, to go on to live our best life now. No. It's what Kirsten Burkett again calls self-efficiency. You can do it, you're the hero. We're saying, I'm my own savior. That isn't what's in view. You see, the result is a restless culture because there's a fear of failure. Well, there's a fear of being exposed or having missed out on ambitions that were never great in the first place. But amazingly, Jesus takes that self-ridden, self-justifying burden and offers us peace. That's the striving is, do you really believe that? Or are you by your actions saying, no, I wanna live my best life now and it looks like getting a bunch of stuff, but Jesus helped me do that. No. The restless heart becomes hard because they can say, I do it in my own strength. The restless heart says, I will find rest on my terms. I don't want yours, Christ. So what's the right way to strive to get Jesus rest? What does that mean for the person here who's suffering with chronic exhaustion? Or the lone parent busily working shifts whilst juggling childcare, but committed to loving God? How am I holding all this together? What does that mean for the student trying to succeed academically to honor their family who have invested so much in their their education? What does that mean for the person just getting on with work and life just feels so ordinary and I've got another 30, 40 years of this ahead of me? Is this it? What does that rest look like? What does that mean for you? Again, I love the way Tim Chester puts this. He writes, if you have put your faith in Jesus, you do not need to justify yourself to God, to other people, or to yourself because Jesus is your justification. He has sat down on that heavenly throne because the work of salvation is done and we are in Christ, seated, finished, resting. Christ asks you to serve him wholeheartedly, but he doesn't ask you to do more than he gives you the skill or the time or the energy to do. You don't need to be controlled by the expectations of other people because they're not your Lord and Savior. Our limitations can actually be a powerful testimony to Jesus's grace and power. Actually, we can rest, isn't that weird, in our weakness. We can rest in the fact that I know the sermons I prepare will always be half done. There's always a better sermon to preach. And I can go, Lord, that's in your hands. You can do the same. Because these things don't save us. We have the saviour. Our identity, Tim writes, is secure in him 
and our future is safe in his hands. And you see, isn't that amazing? We go, oh, wow, it sounds so good, but I bet as soon as we walk out of those electronic double doors <laughs> and we go into the car park, you know, another mindset comes on, doesn't it? It's like a fog descending. And by Monday morning, we go, hey, what, Pete, you just, what were you on about? <laughs> yeah? And did you notice in the passage, Jesus gives us something else. You go, oh, wow, what's this? You and I. Did you notice the we? Chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Did you hear the emphasis? We, together. We've got a responsibility for each other to keep loving the Lord, to keep doing what he says, to keep our minds, our hearts, our eyes fixed on this truth. It's clear as daylight that we're not supposed to walk the Christian life alone because it is a rocky path. It's not easy. It's not a joyride. It doesn't work smoothly because it's to mature us. It's to grow us. It's to bear fruit. And that stuff doesn't come instantaneously. And the easiest targets for the devil to pick off are those Christians who walk alone. It's like the David Attenborough nature programs, isn't it? You know which gazelle's going to get it. It's like, stick your head up out of the water and run. <laughs> the tiger's coming or whatever it is. You're on your own. Stay with the pack. We're foolish if we think we don't need each other. I need you in order to sit, help me know myself and know Christ better. We need each other to do that. I need you to hold up that mirror of God's word to me because my perception is like one of those weird fairground mirrors, you know, where you're all disjointed and bigger and smaller, whatever. Because I, my mind will say, everything's fine. I need you to hold up the word of God to me, that mirror, so that we can see it. And likewise, we need to do that for each other. So how do we do that? Practically. How do we overcome that spiritual blind spot in our lives? Well, you've got to be prepared to open yourselves up to each other. I know our systems, the things we put in place, will only ever meet some of it. You know, we say life groups, be part of a life group. And there are times life groups are brilliant, and then there are times they're dry. And being in a small group with other Christians is probably the last thing on the list to do. And then at other times, it's like the one thing that keeps you going because it's so awesome. But let's just own that and say we want to use these times when we meet midweek to help each other fix on Christ, to be real about where we're at so that we keep going, not for hardened hearts. We want to enter the rest which Jesus has secured for us and says is yours. We don't want to squander that. So we can do that in our midweek groups. You can do that in small groups. You can say to the person that you know well here, will you be praying for me during the week? You've got the tech, so much tech we can use to tell people everything that's going on every minute of our lives now. Why not use some of it just to be sending prayer messages to update each other that way? So have those honest conversations where you can. In the new year, we're going to be starting something called Hope Explored, which will be for our friends who want to look further into Christianity, 
But also, if you're here as a newcomer, if you're trying to get to grips with what the church is about, it'd be a great thing to join in and be part of. We're going to host some, we're going to do them online so they're more accessible. We're also going to be hosting some welcome uh, coffees and mornings like that, whether both on a Saturday, probably Sunday afternoon. We'll try and do some in the evenings as well. Uh, Emily and I and a few others will be hosting those in order to help us rebuild that sense of family and community, to help you find the relationships where you can hold that word up, the mirror, so that we can be changed by each other, so that we hold firmly, not to each other, so that this just becomes a big loving and you know we're all inward looking, but that we love the Lord and hold him firmly. Because his eternal rest is where we're heading. And I'm not prepared to lose that. And I'm not prepared to lose any of you on that way either. The heavenly call, the eternal rest. Let's not become complacent, family. Let's not lose sight over these coming weeks of what Jesus has secured for us. Figure out now, just take a moment, is there someone in your life who you could reach out to and just send that word of encouragement? Someone you could just put, I'm, I'm praying for you, I, I, you know, put verse 12 in your own words or whatever, 11 and 12, and just like, Let's help each other keep our hearts soft to Jesus. Is there a person in mind right now that you're going to get in touch with over this week? Is it a renewed commitment, whether to a small group, whether to making some phone calls, whatever it is going to be, have that moment now. Who is it you're going to be a blessing to and be blessed by? Jesus has done everything to bring us home. Bring us home with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as brothers and sisters, that we would do all that we can in Jesus' power to enter that rest that you have secured for us. Pray that we would... See to it that none of us has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns from you, Lord. We pray that we would encourage each other daily. Because we know that each day is today. It counts how we're following you. So that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Whether that's from outside in the world, whether that's stuff going on in our own hearts. Father, we know we've come to share in Jesus Christ because of your grace. It's a miracle you've worked Lord, give us the strength by your Holy Spirit to hold that original conviction firmly to the very end, to the day we see you face to face in glory, when we praise you and we enter that rest eternal, which has the final word over our lives. Thank you, Father. Amen.